Hi, this is Tamson Gringer. <coughs> this is Dan Abuhoff. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> With uh, Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, March 27th, 2021. Passover has started. Passover has started. So we had our uh, traditional, I think it's fair to call it traditional at this point, Passover celebration uh, last night in which we uh, sat around the table, in this case with uh, Granger and Nico, and read the Haggadah. And, uh, so you called it a celebration. You don't call it a Seder at our house? A Seder is a celebration. That's all it is. Okay. See, um, it, uh, Seder means, if I recall correctly, it's the Hebrew word for order. Mm-hmm. Uh, the text in front of me doesn't say that, but that's what I remember, and I think that's right. And it's really just a vehicle to teach or to recite or to remember the story of Passover in a ritualized way. That's what really it's all about. Uh, And the way we do it, and when I say it's the tradition, uh, is that we follow a Haggadah. There are various versions of Haggadahs. Uh, This one was put together by uh, a woman at at the law firm I worked at in 1992, a woman named Jen Pariser, uh, who's gone on to bigger and better things, uh, representing large corporations. Uh, But in any event, she put together a a Haggadah. And uh, based on the New Oxford Annotated Bible, the Revised Standard Version, uh, which tells the story of uh, Passover. And she edited it slightly. She put in some pictures. And it gives us a chance to sit around the table and, you know, interspersed by a few Hebrew prayers, but basically uh, doing, uh, taking turns, reading a page at a time, telling the story of Passover, which we do over the course of whatever it is, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, And that's our ritual. Fair enough. That's our ritual. I mean, it's more normal for people to have a copy of the Maxwell House <laughs> right? well, Haggadah or can I, whatever. Can I explain Maxwell House Haggadah? Because yeah. that's going to be unusual. So when I was growing up, there were uh, something called the Maxwell House Haggadah. What that means is there were enough Jews in New York that it was worth for a coffee company like Maxwell House to advertise by printing a Haggadah and putting a picture of a big uh, steaming cup of Maxwell House coffee on the cover and perhaps giving that away, and that became the Maxwell House of God. A Maxwell House, just to be clear, has no special meaning uh, in the Old Testament. No, but the point is yeah. that, and and I think the reason Jennifer put this together yeah. was in in many families in yeah. today's world, yeah. it's uh, you know not everybody. It's a blended family, right? Um, and not everybody is observant. Uh, the Jewish religion, mm-hmm. and uh, she wanted to, I think, create something that was inclusive. Right. Uh, even in the 1990s, you know, before we knew inclu- inclusivity was before, a thing, before, right? Before, <laughs> yes, before we really knew what that meant. Um, and, uh, to, you know, something that uh, could really engage the whole table. Yes. I know that you tell me stories of uh, the men in the family kind of rushing through in Hebrew. Right. And uh, so, so in the old days, a bunch of guys, and I was just a kid, but we all spoke Hebrew to some degree, or at least could read Hebrew, and uh, we would go through a lot of the prayers uh, and the, even the story in part in Hebrew, and rushing through because, and I'll just say it this the way it was, the women didn't necessarily go to Hebrew school, certainly in the previous generations, and the women were in the kitchen preparing the meal and sort of exhorting or screaming, depending on how one interprets things, uh, about finish already so we can get the dinner going. But it's not unusual yeah. for many religious rituals yeah. to be just uh, 
sort of cranked out. Yes, I agree. You know, I agree entirely. Not necessarily, especially in a foreign language, embracing every word. Yeah, in foreign language. Not, not everybody does that. We have friends who do satyrs, and they do parse every word. And I will say, and I'm not going to get too deeply into this, but it, it, I always question, even when I was, you know, closer to it, uh, the um, value in pushing to do it in Hebrew, because the truth is. Although many of us read Hebrew, none of us understood Hebrew, and that, that that's that's true no, I can across see that. the that, generations. Yeah. I mean, that's and I'm not talking about one prayers. way to keep the tradition alive. I understand, but even but back when you were doing that, yeah. Catholics were still reading the Mass in Latin, right? But this is okay. A, but, so but the whole purpose of this is to tell a story. Yeah, and you can't. There's no story being told in a way that could be understood when the story is being told in Hebrew. So anyway, we, um, we with the help of Jen. Yeah. Uh, Jen Zagata, illustrated yes. by a young Zeke Abuhoff. Who did the cover. Yeah. And we mean young. I, well, I'm going to say five. How old was he? Is I, you know, I don't... Uh, Showed promise. Probably around then. five. It's, yeah. It's, and, but it's delightful uh, to have his drawing at the age of five, because we know yeah. him now at the age of God knows what. And, and um, But anyway, this worked very well for our family, and we've and used it for, I guess, at least 25 years, yes. more than that. And it continues to work well. And it's become our tradition. Right. And it's managed to resonate. Yes, and so we had a nice time last night. A wide cast of characters. Right. Yeah, we had um, the food that we have is not traditional. Um, traditional uh, but that's not important. But it's our tradition. We yeah. have certain things we eat. And yeah. in fact, the dessert yeah. that we traditionally have is what we call tofu surprise. Yeah, it's hard to use tofu traditionally, but it's true. But I mean, it's a non-dairy Right. Uh, chocolate mousse right. made with tofu. And the funny thing is, but usually you emphasize the religious aspects of non-dairy because you're having meat earlier, but we have fish. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a so mixed it's just, metaphor. It's, yeah, it's just... But it's a delicious It's dessert. our tradition. It's a very intense chocolate. And, uh, you want to give your recipe There out? is no, some... Before? No, I mean, there you can go online and uh, just uh, Google... Uh, Chocolate tofu mousse. There are a million recipes. Good luck. It's not easy to make. It's very easy to make. It's shockingly easy to make. But I, I put it in a um, cookie sh- shell. Well, I shouldn't say that because we're probably not allowed to have cookies, uh, to be honest. Sure, we are. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, but you also, I should point out, you and Granger made the uh, we, matzah. Yeah, we made matzah. You yeah. can make matzah. Now, talk about easy to make. Oh. Matzah is very easy to make. And quite tasty. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not square with little perforations, or, but it's not thick and cardboardy yeah. like the matzah that you buy uh, at the market. But uh, yeah, you can make that pretty easily. So anyway, it's a. a Do you want nice... me to give the matzah recipe? No, <laughs> but what's in it? Uh, it's just olive oil, uh, flour, salt. That's pretty much it. And water and water, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, it's a, our, the recipe we use is a, a Mark Bittman Right, and it's baked, baked at high heat, very thinly rolled. Very quickly. And uh, two minutes, three minutes on each side, 500 degrees, voila, as they say in, in the Hebrew trade. So anyway, it's a nice way to greet yeah. spring, and uh, yeah. by hook or by crook, it's a tradition that yeah. involves uh, our whole fine. family uh, in cooking and singing and everything else. So... Uh, um, happy Pesach. Yes, Pesach is Hebrew. Good work, honey. Uh, Catching on. Yeah, so we, uh, we were going to talk a little bit about a show that we've been watching, but we hadn't mentioned it. That's Borgen. I don't know that we haven't mentioned it, but we're going to mention it again. Because <laughs> well, it's Passover, honey. Now's it's, the time. It's taking us a while to get through it. 
Well, it's um, going to take because a while. Because we, we watch it as a family. And, but, but um, it's good. It's great. Borgen, which means the castle. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And it is the building that houses the Danish government. That the I parliament, yeah. the prime minister's office, and the Supreme Court. Yeah, sure. So everything, you know, political, you know, is happening there. Well, they do refer in it all the time to the yeah. castle. Yeah. You've got to behave this way in the castle. Right. And we should say it has subtitles. But we, it seems everything we watch is subtitles at this yeah, point. Yeah, so we're we're okay with it. Are now, we, I, of course, was I think, dragged kicking and screaming to always. watch this. There's not a single series that we enjoyed this, that you, you, that you, you know, weren't dragged. I'd rather you know stick a needle in my eye than watch political dramas, to be honest. <laughs> you find a reason to be negative. No, political dramas are just boring. But it's better but if it's a different country. It's better if it's a different culture, country. Not unlike uh, Call My Agent... Where we, you know, different sensibilities. enjoy the French culture. The crazy it's French. fun to, you know, experience the Danish culture. Right. And we do listen to the language mm-hmm. because we can't understand a word. I mean, they sometimes use little English phrases. Right. Okay. Or you hear a word here that seems similar to the word in German or something like that. But um, it, uh, you know, it's fun to see how other people... Uh, argue about politics, well, you know, exactly. uh, deal with their families. Now, there's a large human content to this. There, there are personalities, there are relationships. Uh, we get to know the prime minister's uh, family. And, and the whole key to this is that um, the, um, the prime minister is a woman. Right. So she's the first female uh, prime Minister. Well, it's the whole key because the family dynamic is so much different for that reason. Right. And the woman playing the Prime Minister, I have no idea how to pronounce it, Sidza Babbitt Knudsen. Yeah, I think that's right. Is known to... I mean, you recognized her. No, I didn't. But, uh, no, the I kids recognized from her Westworld. from Westworld. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I think she's a very acclaimed actress in, in Denmark. Yeah, and she's, very, she's well. very good. It was created by Adam Price... Okay. Well, he's a playwright, but he also owns restaurants. Is that right? Yeah. And he had a TV show called Eat with Price oh. with his brother. So um, Was he American or was he Danish? Or no, I think he's Danish. I don't know. And he's named Adam Price and she's named... Uh, I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, in, if you look, if you, if you Google him, it yeah. says Danish playwright. All right. So maybe he's not really Danish. I don't know. Maybe he just hangs but out. But it was there. it was made a few years ago, so we're watching a two thousand ten. Yeah, so we're watching a ten year old series. But that's fine, and you know it's it's kind of uh, we're not famous for being up to date. You know, speak for yourself, honey. But, but my point is that it's uh, it it's different enough from Americans that it, it's removed, so it's cool, and the and and the kind of dynamic that she has, the family dynamic, is kind of low key, lower case. It's not the kind of thing you'd see in Washington. She goes home to her place. It's a normal house. It's a fairly normal family. You know, her husband's making adjustments that are difficult for him to make, but it, you could, it's totally relatable. And mm. it's just, no one says, well, but you're the prime minister of, of, of Denmark. Everything changes. It's not like that. It's like she comes home. She might as well be a teacher or a nurse or something like that. And uh, they try to work it out. But her schedule is a little worse because she's prime minister, honestly. So, Well, one of the things I like about it is she's... Uh, very down to earth. She's very down to earth. And she seems incorruptible. She's totally incorruptible, but she's also the smartest person in the series. She's it, smart, but she's warm and fair. Right. There's yeah. only one person smarter in that series. Her husband. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's strange. Yeah. Well, or at least it's smart. And and, and the, the only reason I, I mention this, she's so smart, 
is because she's dealing with political people all the time. I mean, she's dealing with her husband on the off moment. But uh, she's head and shoulders above everybody she's dealing with, be they the imposing party or her own ministers. She's really very capable. But she's not a career politician. Is that right? I feel like um, she got into it. She might have been an activist or something, but she didn't get into the real politics of it till, I don't know, five years ago or something. So she maybe... You know, that seems to be the subtle right. hint as to why she's somewhat well, She's not the careerist yeah. that the other people. She's constantly right. running other people. And, and that's the principle be, and, At the beginning, there's a lot of, but we've always done it this way. Yeah. And what, she will say, not anymore. Well, one of the principal tensions in it is not so much the difference between liberal and conservative. You see that. But it's between people who have their objectives as individuals for their own careers and are trying to make their own names or trying to get themselves in the newspaper or make themselves look good. And governing the country in the optimal way. And there's clearly a tension there again and again. And you can certainly identify that with American politics. So the three main things we see is we see the politics. We see what's going on at the castle. Yeah. But also, and we see um, the prime minister's home and family. Right. Okay. And the TV station. Right. And how these things are. The media. The media. How the media um Shows what's right. going on, yeah, and tries scene. to manipulate what's going on, etc. Uses it for ratings. Uses everything for ratings. Yeah. Yeah. So um, again, that's something we can identify with with the U.S. culture. We get it. Yeah. So anyway, it's very well. Borgen. Borgen. B o r g e n. All right. So um, there are a couple uh, interesting passings this week. Um, Elton Baylor died. So who's Elton Baylor? So Elton Baylor was a great basketball player. Uh, and he, you know, he got a semi-prominent uh, set of obituaries or whatever uh, and tributes. But they don't really capture who Elgin Baylor uh, was and, and how different the time was. So Elgin Baylor was a guy who played basketball, uh, graduated from Seattle University in 1958, went to the NBA, and then played 10 or 11 years in the NBA. Uh, when Elgin Baylor played in the NBA, he was close to the greatest basketball player of all time. He wasn't an all-star. He was, of course, an all-star, but he was more than that. He was, he was like LeBron James. He was like uh, you know, Seth Curry, whoever you can think of as the top, top basketball player. He was, he was like Michael Jordan. That's what I mean by greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is he, he's not remembered that way. I don't think he's well-remembered, except for people who are old enough for basketball aficionados. But it tells you the way the game has changed so fundamentally uh, in a way that the people who played in the early 60s or whatever, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, by definition are not considered the greatest players. The game, and this is very different from Major League Baseball, the game is considered to have evolved in a way that those guys were anachronistic. Those guys, whatever they were doing, it's interesting. They built the foundation, but the players of today are just by definition superior. Uh, and again, maybe it's true. He was a 6'5 forward. Uh, he had games where he scored 70 points a game. He was just an amazing player. But if you um, look at lists, like ESPN puts lists of the greatest players of all time, he's 18th, 15th, 18th, 20th, whatever, okay? And you look at the, and you look at the list carefully and you realize that of the 15, 16, 17 players who are ranked above him, they've all been playing in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, in other words, if you had put that list together when he was at his heyday, he would have been second mm-hmm. or third to Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. And those are the only people who rank ahead of him now. The game has changed so completely 
uh, and the players' reputations have uh, changed uh, accordingly. And that's maybe that's natural. Maybe that's the way it is. But uh, or maybe that's a little bit uh, of an overstatement. You certainly, when you talk to old timers, they'll still tell you that Elgin Baylor was one of the top five players of all time. But I think the game has changed in a lot of ways, and maybe that's all to the good. But Major League Baseball is so different. We were talking before about an article in the Times Magazine section which talked about the resistance to accepting anybody who would have supplanted Babe Ruth as the greatest home run hitter of all time and the difficulties Hank Aaron ran into because he supplanted him. And I was telling you about the difficulties Roger Maris ran into for hitting 61 home runs in a season. Baseball is exactly the opposite. There's a strong belief that the greatest player has played in the... Mm. 40s and 50s, hmm. whatever. And even now, if you, you just pull something out, you know, who's the greatest player of all time? No one's going to say, no, no one's going to say Alex Rodriguez. No one's going to say anybody who's, who's currently on the scene. They're going to give you a name like Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or maybe even Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. It's a fundamentally different thing. Uh, and maybe that reflects a different demographic. I think it does. Uh, but um, in any event, uh, it's certainly striking that, that Elgin Baylor while celebrated to some degree, uh, not considered the greatest. So, of out of a, after a lot of wailing and ganashing of teeth, ganashing, ganashing of yes. teeth. Yes, yes, right. Uh, you claim to be leading uh, in the pool. I'm not leading. I'm third. for the NCAA. Well, I was third going into this week, and I think right now I'm probably leading. Uh, so, but that will change. So here's what it, my experience in the pool is. There was a lot of oh woe is me, me last weekend. First of all, here's here's a story you're familiar with. I always go from I'm doing badly to we're going to the Bahamas. Yes. To I can't believe my team lost the game and I lost the tournament. Yeah. And we may be in the middle of that same trip, that right. same travelogue. Right. But right now, since we're in the middle, we're going to the Bahamas. <laughs> and uh, we'll see how that works out. I mean, uh, I'll just say the team I picked to win the tournament just finished their game to advance to the Elite Eight, and they won the game by 20 points. And no one at this level of the tournament wins by 20 points. So you may have an extremely insightful husband when it comes to basketball. So you're enjoying the NCAAs. Well, as long as they keep winning like that. So let's talk about the NCAAs, because you had something about March Madness. Because you hear that phrase all the time. Um, you know, where that phrase comes from, March Madness. I, I had that article. I passed it on to you. No, I gave it back to you. Okay. I, I was not interested in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, here's what's interesting to me about it. March it's Madness. not like it derives from some well, uh, interesting old myth or something. It, well, here's where it comes. You know, they trace it back to Indiana basketball, to, well, the Illinois basketball, to Indiana basketball, and, and they go back to the, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. But there apparently is an early reference to March Madness. Um, where was this? Uh, yes, because the Oxford English Dictionary explains it. If you go back to the 16th century. Well, it's from, it's from the, you've heard the expression mad as a March hare. There you go. That's what it's really from. And that refers to rabbits doing what rabbits do best. Well, Hampton, this well, is clean. Rabbits apparently really go crazy during in March, the, the breeding season. Hares are wilder because than other times. Because of the breeding times. season. What a surprise. Okay, and that is, quote, March madness. It's so, May. It's May. I guess it's March. It's March. The lusty month of March. Okay, this is a Camelot reference for those who weren't on top of this. But my point is yeah. that when they keep referring to March madness, they're talking about rabbits making love, basically. Uh, that's that's the sad truth of it, Tamsin, now that you've nailed that down. 
Um, well, they, they said that Brent Musburger was the first yes. person to refer to it yes, as he was, actually when more he was right working in, as a in the broadcast. Well, the, Brent was, and then there was all kinds of way. nonsense. Even though the high school, the Illinois high school people, kind of made it up. Yeah. Um, NCAA's decided they wanted to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then and, you get into law, and then, yeah. you know who copyrighted it. I don't even I don't understand that because I don't want to understand it. It's just and what really pisses me off, uh-uh. Mr. Lawyer, yeah. is at the end of the article it says, "Yeah." And the NCAA is like sued some poor little car right. dealership because of markdown madness. Yeah, was used as a promotional phrase. And they said they were phrase. successful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that they shouldn't be successful. That's rude. I I disagree. Well, look, there markdown the, madness. You know, there's there's such a thing as having the wrong lawyer. If if you follow me, mm. okay, you get what you pay for. Uh, you know what interested me about it, other than the fact that I'm doing extremely well in the pool about the tournament. You know, they're playing it entirely in Indiana. Uh, because of COVID, and uh, therefore they're using they had to use more than one venue. They otherwise they'd use some fabulous stadium type thing. Lucas Oil, I think, is the stadium. It's called, but uh, they have other venues, and they're using the Hinkle Fieldhouse. So, that, what is the Hinkle Fieldhouse? Yes. Yeah, so what is the Finkle Fieldhouse? <laughs> the Finkle Fieldhouse. Easy for you to say. It's the Hinkle Fieldhouse. It's a fieldhouse which opened in 1928. It's in Indiana. And in Indianapolis, I believe too. And it's um, it's a seats fifteen thousand people, which was a big deal. Who cares? In nineteen twenty, who cares? Here, here, here's, here's fifteen thousand people aren't allowed to come. Well, that's true too. But in any event, it's very airy. It's we could do it on our little <laughs> court here. Yes, but here's the significant. First of all, we're not in Indiana, so we're not uh, really candidate for this. Okay, and uh, it's got amazingly high ceilings. It's a huge structure. It has these big windows that are open, and it's, it's a fantastic, beautiful structure. But it's, it's the place where they played the famous Indiana high school basketball tournament for years and years and years, or I should say, from 1928 until 1972, in which every high school division winner across the state, no matter how big a high school, no matter how big the divisions were, whether you were a high school graduated 300 or a high school graduated 1,500, you were allowed to enter this tournament if you won your division and they would play. And obviously, it was grounds for a lot of mismatches because a huge school with a huge reputation would be playing as a Goliath against some David. And that gave rise, of course, to the great movie Hoosiers, uh, which is about uh, a tournament that took place in 1954, where in fact one of these David schools, a school called Milan High School, won the tournament. And you remember the movie Hoosiers, which was. I don't remember the game, but. I'm... Well, <laughs> but they depicted that's what the. the yeah, I got, got it. Okay. And the movie was made in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only was it about an event in Hinkle Fieldhouse, but it was filmed at the Hinkle Fieldhouse. So. There's a lot of talk this week about the Hinkle Fieldhouse, and there are some players who are saying, God, I always heard about this place. And many fa- famous people played. John Wooden played there as a high school player, Larry Bird, Oscar Robinson, people like that. who um, are associated with Indiana. And on the other hand, there are your modern players. They quote a kid from Baylor who said, they tried to make me watch that Hoosiers movie. I got through just a few minutes. Boring, <laughs> boring, boring beyond belief. So, uh, and yet I can tell you, I know some people who think it's the best movie ever made mm-hmm. but it certainly is something to see this kind of high level basketball play in this big tournament in this i'll call it anachronistic hinkle field house uh it, it certainly adds something uh, to the tournament 
to me at least. And winning the pool would it add that much more. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck, Dan. Thanks. Well, you'll yes. get to see a little something. I, yeah, I usually do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I don't have much On to talk about this week. Uh, but uh, there was a big article in the Science Times of the New York Times, Faces from Prehistory. And it's about um, a wooden, about it's about some wooden sculpture fragments that were found a long time ago, 1890, actually. Yeah. So in some ways, they're not news. Near Siberia, okay? Yeah. And um, they're pieces of wood with carvings on them, geometric carvings and face carvings. And this is now touted to be the oldest um, work of ritual art in existence because recent um, sort of methods of analysis are saying that it is 12,500 years old based on being able to analyze the age of the tree it was carved from, right. etc. Right. Okay, so that is old. In in general, wood is what they call archaeologically invisible. Okay, it deteriorates. Yeah, it right. rots. Right. It disappears. Right. So there may have been tons right. of wooden art mm-hmm. all over the place, right. and we don't know about it because it's gone. This was preserved by a magical peat bog and, you know, discovered by gold miners. And then it was trucked out to a museum in, um, this is hard for me, Yekaterinburg. Okay. Um, And it's been in this museum. It's a face and a bunch of pieces with, you know, diagonal Mm -hmm. um, chevrons, etc. scraped into it. At some point... Back in the 1890s, somebody assembled it to kind of look like a person, but there's no reason to think it should have looked like that. Over time, some of the pieces have been lost, okay? But there's enough left that they were able to do this um, analysis and find out that it really is this old. Now, what you don't probably realize is that when people like me teach Paleolithic art, Stone Age art, Neolithic art... It all centers around Western Europe Mm -hmm. and the Fertile Crescent, and that's where everything is. So to find something from Siberia Mm -hmm. opens up a whole new world of how to tell this story, Mm -hmm. okay? And clearly, it wasn't that there was no art or ritual happening in the rest of the world, which is how we've been telling the story. Mm -hmm. You know, we're saying, yeah, this is, this is where it all developed in Western Europe. Western Europe continues to reign supreme. No, 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 no. We're beginning to discover Mm -hmm. that much was going on. uh, And uh, I think it's very exciting. I think Mm -hmm. we're going to see a whole new story of how, um, well, that is that is interesting. Your, your your Western Europe point. Uh, yeah. yeah, and some of that is just from you know, uh, from what we were able to discover. You have ivory, you have marble, you have things that have lasted, you know, all these millennia. Uh, 
or whatever, but the wood is archaeologically invisible. Okay, but there has been a choice too to just tell the story in a certain way because you know we are the birth Western Europe birthplace of civilization was important. That idea was important to some people. So not even for political reasons or inclusivity reasons, uh, but for purely sort of scientific, scientific analytical um, reasons, we're beginning to broaden the story. And, and that, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, that is. That is something. All right. You actually hooked me with an art story. That's, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, I'd like to return the favor. I think you were pretty interested in Elton Baylor. Uh, was I reading you wrong? <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, um, yes, you, you know, you, you worry that, uh, I mean, that, that's why we have Passover. Which is? Uh, the more we tell the story, the more we are to be praised. Yeah. I mean, you, you worry that there are interesting stories, interesting people that are lost yeah. uh, in the shuffle just because... Uh, our focus is on, uh, you know, the way we see things today. Things today. Yeah. You know? Yes. Just so to be clear, uh, the more one tells a story, the more one is to be praised. That's in the Haggadah. Uh, and, and there is something to that because the more you tell the story, the more you see things in the story. Uh, yes. And, and it's a good story. Yeah. It's a very good story. Well, but it's true I of mean, a lot of things. The closer you look at things, the more you gain. Yeah. Is it really what it's saying? Right. Even, even though we rushed through it to get to the well, tofu surprise. Well. <laughs> Listen, it's this tofu surprise. It's still a surprise. Um, this is just, uh, you see a story like this every every few years. There's a fellow named Ely Kligman, uh, who happens to be a high school baseball player who's quite good. Uh, and maybe he has prospects. He lives in Las Vegas. There's talk about him being a star at the college level, maybe even the pro level. Uh, and why is there an article about him in the New York Times? He's just a high school baseball player. And the answer is because he's an observant Jew, which means that he will not play on the Sabbath, which means he will not play on Friday night or Saturday. Well, he must be really, really good. He is really good. Uh, whether he's as good as the story makes him out, we shall see. I mean, he's certainly succeeding uh, greatly at the high school level. He both pitches and hits, but that's not that unusual at the high school level. You see players who do that, but they describe him as fantastic. Uh, here's what's interesting to me. I mean, he keeps insisting, and he's dealing with college coaches. They're recruiting him, and you would think a college coach would be turned off by this. They say that some college coaches are turned off by it. Others say, well, the guy's so kid's so good, we can work with him. Mm-hmm. And the same will be true of the pros. But, you know, the pros don't play every single game. People get time off. And here's what's interesting to me about what he did career-wise. I mentioned that he's a pitcher and is a very good hitter. He's learned to become a catcher. Now, why did he learn to become a catcher? Because you can catch on the Sabbath, but not... No, you can't pitch. catch on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's a good guess, though. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> you can't catch on the it's... Sabbath. And, or you could say it's because I was a catcher, but that, that, that right. also would be wrong. Uh, it's because catchers, because that position is so demanding, no catchers play every day. All catchers get days off. Okay? So if you're an outfielder, you know, they'd say, gee, we'd love you to play every single day the whole season. We understand you'll get injured once in a while. But the idea about taking one or two days off a week would be considered highly unusual. If you're a catcher, they say, well, no one can catch every day. So you'll take your days off on Friday night. 
and or Saturday. Okay. And that, to me, is kind of a genius. Now, whether whether he's suited to be a catcher or not, they say he's doing very well, he's got a great arm, et cetera, et cetera. Usually, if you're a great hitter, they don't make you a catcher because you have, catching is so demanding, it ends up undermining your ability to hit. It takes too much energy. But in his case, that's the way to go. So we can get days off. So I thought that was an interesting solution. So that's... it's another reason to have a Jewish catcher. Um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> let's see. We're almost finished here. Uh, but these are interesting stories. So George Siegel passed away. George Siegel was a big actor. He made a lot of, uh, arguably, he was the most sought after, at least the most often cast, the male lead uh, in movies during uh, the 70s. Um, and in part in the 80s, he played sort of a, in every man all the time. He became known later in his career for sitcoms, you know, for comic roles. And it surprised me that uh, a lot of the obituaries focused, they said, you know, but he's best known, it literally said in one time, best known for his uh, work in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which they mentioned was, of course, uh, a dramatic film which was done in the early 80s. I have the date here uh, somewhere. But um, that, I thought, was very interesting. And so I took a look at that, and I said, well, gee, was that was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, a movie that uh, really attracted that much attention? I mean, did you? I never saw it. Did you see it, Tamsin? No, because uh, in my mind, if I want to see... Um, married couples uh, bicker with each other. I just, uh, you know, go home and visit my folks. Yeah. It, did not, it was not a subject okay. matter that appealed to me. Yes, right? you were right. So it was, I, I should say, the film was 1966, and it was a blowout. It's a, the, the film is two couples. Uh, so the older couple uh, and a younger couple, um, professors at a local college, but it it was a, it's, it's, sort of a spiraling wild argument, particularly between the older couple and the uh, the younger couple ends up getting enmeshed in it based on a very famous Edward Albee play. But it always seemed kind of an unattractive, uninteresting movie and you almost wondered how it could have succeeded or did it succeed. Well, here's what I learned about Virginia Woolf. It succeeded enormously, which I didn't realize. It was the third gross highest grossing movie of 1966, which mm-hmm. is kind of unfathomable, mm-hmm. right? Um, it starred um, George Siegel and Sandy Dennis were the young couple. You remember Sandy Dennis right. from upstairs and downstairs, uh, or uh, up the downstairs case, I'm sorry. And uh, the older couple, and this is where the box office came from, was Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Right. And uh, what I didn't realize, and maybe he did, did you know that Elizabeth Taylor was 20 years younger than Richard Burton? No. Okay. So she was, the older couple, she was in her 30s in this movie, mm-hmm. which was kind of weird casting. Yeah. Uh, she won the Oscar for Best Actress, by the way. But the they film. figured she'd have chemistry. Yeah. Well, she did. I think she had arguments with, like that with her husband. Or sometime husbands. Well, they, they married and divorced and married. And, and yeah. yeah, they had wild uh, times and he was a big drinker. And uh, yeah, so it was a little bit true to life. Um, uh, and the... Uh, the funny thing is the director was Mike Nichols. That was the, we all see him as a famous director. That's the first movie he ever directed. Mm-hmm. So how does he get that job? And here's how he gets that job. Yeah. It's, it's the weirdest story. Uh, he was on Broadway 
at the same time that Burton was on Broadway, he was on Broadway in Nichols in May, because you recall he would, with Elaine Nichols, they were a comedy team and they had a Broadway show. Right. When um, Richard Burton was on Broadway in Camelot, Mm-hmm. And the theaters were next to each other. They shared an alley. They would duck out there to get a smoke. And they got to know each other. Mm-hmm. And they became friends. And then when this project came up, Bert said, you know who could direct this? My friend, Mike <laughs> Nichols. And he's in his 30s. And he's a young guy. And he directs mm-hmm. it. Uh, and it won. It was, it was nominated for like 11 Academy Awards. All the main actors got nominated. The, the two women won. Uh, and it lost out. And this is a movie that came up today uh, in Best Picture 2. Man for All Seasons, ah. which your mother was watching recently, Today, if I yeah. recall correctly. So I thought, uh, so maybe one day I'll talk you into watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm. What do you say? Mm. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe if we win the pool. Yeah, you, um, you watch it and report back. Okay, so finally, and you can get it. It's not hard to get. Uh, finally, Bobby Brown passed away. So Bobby Brown was an interesting guy. Uh, he played for the Yankees. He's considered a name that some people recognize. Uh, successful, but not a star, certainly not a superstar. But he has a very interesting story, and that is that um, he actually uh, was in and out of medical school in Korea during his Yankee career and ended up up becoming a cardiologist, um, which is not the normal baseball player So he must have been really good, too. Yeah, he was very good. He was super good. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> but he didn't have the big baseball career. So he, he basically, he graduated, he received a medical degree from Tulane University in 1950. That's interesting because he started playing for the Yankees in 1947. The way he, pa- he paid for medical school was he, he was in the Army or in the Army Reserve and they were paying for his medical school. And then he got called up. And then he got called up. So he was... Not entirely available to the Yankees during his medical studies. He used to leave before the season's over for a portion of work in his medical studies, if you can Mm -hmm. believe it. And then in 1952, he got called up to go to Korea. Mm -hmm. And he had very serious service in Korea. And by the time he came back uh, a couple years later, he was uh, was discharged in April 54. His career was kind of over. So he had four or five very successful World Series for the Yankees, mm-hmm. 1947 to 1951. The Yankees won all those World Series. He was a big part of that. He was a big star, but he was in and out of medical school, in and out of the Army. I mean, you don't hear such a thing today. Um, and then he gets, he finishes with the Yankees, and then he goes and studies to become a cardiologist. And he becomes a cardiologist a few years later, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the late 50s. Um, and he practices as a cardiologist for 20 years. And then he, 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 1958, he became a cardiologist. He leaves that career to come back to baseball, to be the president of the American League. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's just doing discipline or stuff like that. You know, how, how long is someone going to be suspended for arguing with an umpire? That's what the president of the American League does. And uh, so you would expect... This kind of obituary, this kind of story to be a guy who says, um, well, you know something, baseball was fun, but my calling was to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I made my mark and that's what meant something to me. And the answer to that is no. (laughs) What happened is he left at the age of 59 from cardiologist to go to Baseball American League. He said, you know something, this is a drag. (laughs) Cardiology? (laughs) Yeah. He said, I'm 59 years old. I, you know, and when you're on duty as a doctor, you're really on. The calls can come at any hour. 
Uh, I've been doing this for 26 years. I can't see myself continuing to do this. I've got to get out of this, this cardiology racket. Baseball. And he goes back to baseball. I thought you were going to say yeah. that he was so busy with his reservist work yeah. and uh, um, studying to be a doctor uh, that he only played on the Sabbath because that was the only time <laughs> that's he good. had time. That's good. That's... Friday nights and Saturday mornings. Well, so the rest of the time he was busy. That would have been good, but that's not the case. So okay. at, at the end... Um, Again, consistent with the theme, like you'd expect a guy to say, gee, you know, I really contributed to society was being a doctor. The baseball thing was fun, but who cares? Just the opposite. Here's, here's, he was asked uh, when he was about to become the American League president uh, by the Times, if he ever wondered what kind of a player he would have been if he had pursued baseball full time. His answer, I ask it to myself every day. <laughs> so you never know. Yeah. Or as we say, tofu surprise. So uh, that's it you know, for this it, week. It just is amazing how delicious tofu mousse is. I, I, I will say that. It, it, I, I'll back you up 100%. It's super. We should have it more often. Yeah. Maybe Easter. Mm. So speaking of Easter, we'll, we'll see you next on Easter next week. With Dan and Tamsin read the paper. Dan and Tamsin? Well, I mean, this, this, this time I think it was your show. <laughs> Thanks very much. All right. So we'll see you next week. Bye bye.